0: Section 18 of Library of World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 4 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darvinia. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 4 by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 18 Zadig the Babylonian, by Voltaire. Part One The Blind of One Eye There lived at Babylon in the reign of King Moabdar a young man named Zadig, of a good natural disposition, strengthened and improved by education. Though rich and young, he had learned to moderate his passions. He had nothing stiff or affected in his behaviour, he did not pretend to examine every action by the strict rules of reason, but was always ready to make proper allowances for the weakness of mankind. It was a matter of surprise that, notwithstanding his sprightly wit, he never exposed by his raillery those vague, incoherent, and noisy discourses, those rash censures, ignorant decisions, coarse jests, and all that empty jingle of words, which at Babylon went by the name of conversation. He had learned, in the first book of Zoroaster, that self-love is a football swelled with wind, from which, when pierced, the most terrible tempests issue forth. Above all, Zadig never boasted of his conquests among the women, nor affected to entertain a contemptible opinion of the fair sex. He was generous, and never afraid of obliging the ungrateful, remembering the grand precept of Zoroaster. When thou eatest, give to the dogs, should they even bite thee. He was as wise as it is possible for man to be, for he sought to live with the wise. Instructed in the sciences of the ancient Chaldeans, he understood the principles of natural philosophy, such as they were then supposed to be, And knew as much of metaphysics as hath ever been known in any age, that is, little or nothing at all. He was firmly persuaded, notwithstanding the new philosophy of the times, that the year consisted of three hundred and sixty-five days and six hours, and that the sun was in the centre of the world. But when the principal magi told him, with a haughty and contemptuous air, that his sentiments were of a dangerous tendency, and that it was to be an enemy to the state to believe that the sun revolved round its own axis and that the year had twelve months he held his tongue with great modesty and meekness possessed as he was of great riches and consequently of many friends blessed with a good constitution a handsome figure a mind just and moderate and a heart noble and sincere he fondly imagined that he might easily be happy. He was going to be married to Samira, who in point of beauty, birth, and fortune, was the first match in Babylon. He had a real and virtuous affection for this lady, and she loved him with the most passionate fondness. The happy moment was almost arrived that was to unite them forever in the bands of wedlock, when happening to take a walk together toward one of the gates of Babylon under the palm-trees that adorn the banks of the Euphrates, they saw some men approaching, armed with sabres and arrows. These were the attendants of young Orkan, the minister's nephew, whom his uncle's creatures had flattered into an opinion that he might do everything with impunity. He had none of the graces nor virtues of Zadig. But thinking himself a much more accomplished man, he was enraged to find that the other was preferred before him. This jealousy, which was merely the effect of his vanity, made him imagine that he was desperately in love with Samira, and accordingly he resolved to carry her off. The ravishers seized her, in the violence of the outrage they wounded her, and made the blood flow from her person, the sight of which would have softened the tigers of Mount Imus. She pierced the heavens with her complaints. SHE CRIED OUT, MY DEAR HUSBAND, THEY TEAR ME FROM THE MAN I ADORE. REGARDLESS OF HER OWN DANGER, SHE WAS ONLY CONCERNED FOR THE FATE OF HER DEAR ZADIG, WHO, IN THE MEANTIME, DEFENDED HIMSELF WITH ALL THE STRENGTH THAT COURAGE AND LOVE COULD INSPIRE. ASSISTED ONLY BY TWO SLAVES, HE PUT THE RAVISHERS TO FLIGHT, AND CARRIED HOME Samira, INSENSIBLE AND BLOODY AS SHE WAS. "'on opening her eyes and beholding her deliverer. "'O Zadig,' said she, "'I loved thee formerly as my intended husband. "'I now love thee as the preserver of my honour and my life.' "'Never was heart more deeply affected than that of Samira. "'Never did a more charming mouth express more moving sentiments "'in those glowing words inspired by a sense of the greatest of all favours, and by the most tender transports of a lawful passion. Her wound was slight, and was soon cured. Zadig was more dangerously wounded. An arrow had pierced him near his eye, and penetrated to a considerable depth. Samira wearied heaven with her prayers for the recovery of her lover. Her eyes were constantly bathed in tears. She anxiously waited the happy moment when those of Zadig should be able to meet hers but an abscess growing on the wounded eye gave everything to fear. A messenger was immediately dispatched to Memphis for the great physician Hermes, who came with a numerous retinue. He visited the patient, and declared that he would lose his eye. He even foretold the day and hour when this fatal event would happen. Had it been the right eye, said he, I could easily have cured it, but the wounds of the left eye are incurable. All Babylon lamented the fate of Zadig, and admired the profound knowledge of Hermes. In two days the abscess broke of its own accord, and Zadig was perfectly cured. Hermes wrote a book to prove that it ought not to have been cured. Zadig did not read it, but as soon as he was able to go abroad, he went to pay a visit to her in whom all his hopes of happiness were centred, and for whose sake alone he wished to have eyes. Samira had been in the country for three days past. He learned on the road that that fine lady, having openly declared that she had an unconquerable aversion to one-eyed men, had the night before given her hand to Orcan. At this news he fell speechless to the ground— His sorrow brought him almost to the brink of the grave. He was long indisposed, but reason at last got the better of his affliction, and the severity of his fate served to console him. Since, said he, I have suffered so much from the cruel caprice of a woman educated at court, I must now think of marrying the daughter of a citizen. He pitched upon Azora, a lady of the greatest prudence, and of the best family in town. He married her, and lived with her for three months in all the delights of the most tender union. He only observed that she had a little levity, and was too apt to find that those young men who had the most handsome persons were likewise possessed of most wit and virtue. THE NOSE One morning azorro returned from a walk in a terrible passion, and uttering the most violent exclamations. What aileth thee? said he, my dear spouse. What is it that can thus have discomposed thee? Alas! said she, thou wouldst be as much enraged as I am, hadst thou seen what I have just beheld. I have been to comfort the young widow Khosru, who, within these two days, hath raised a tomb to her young husband near the rivulet that washes the skirts of this meadow. She vowed to heaven, in the bitterness of her grief, to remain at this tomb while the water of the rivulet should continue to run near it. "'Well,' said Zadig, "'she is an excellent woman and loved her husband with the most sincere affection.' "'Ah,' replied Azora, "'didst thou but know in what she was employed when I went to wait upon her?' "'In what, pray beautiful Azora? Was she turning the course of the rivulet?' Azora broke out into such long invectives and loaded the young widow with such bitter reproaches that Zadig was far from being pleased with this ostentation of virtue. Zadig had a friend named Cador, one of those young men in whom his wife discovered more probity and merit than in others. He made him his confidant and secured his fidelity as much as possible by a considerable present. Azora, having passed two days with a friend in the country, returned home on the third. The servants told her, with tears in their eyes, that her husband died suddenly the night before, that they were afraid to send her an account of this mournful event, and that they had just been depositing his corpse in the tomb of his ancestors at the end of the garden. She wept, she tore her hair, and swore she would follow him to the grave. In the evening Cador begged leave to wait upon her, and joined his tears with hers. Next day they wept less, and dined together. Cador told her that his friend had left him the greatest part of his estate, and that he should think himself extremely happy in sharing his fortune with her. The lady wept, fell into a passion, and at last became more mild and gentle they sat longer at supper than at dinner. They now talked with greater confidence. Azora praised the deceased, but owned that he had many failings, from which Cador was free. During supper Cador complained of a violent pain in his side. The lady, greatly concerned and eager to serve him, caused all kinds of essences to be brought, with which she anointed him to try, if some of them might not possibly ease him of his pain. She lamented that the great Hermes was not still in Babylon. She even condescended to touch the side in which Cador felt such exquisite pain. "'Art thou subject to this cruel disorder?' said she to him with a compassionate air. "'It sometimes brings me,' replied Cador, "'to the brink of the grave.' AND THERE IS BUT ONE REMEDY THAT CAN GIVE ME RELIEF, AND THAT IS TO APPLY TO MY SIDE THE NOSE OF A MAN WHO IS LATELY DEAD. A STRANGE REMEDY INDEED, SAID AZORA. NOT MORE STRANGE, REPLIED HE, THAN THE SATCHELS OF ARNON AGAINST THE APOPLEXY. THIS REASON, ADDED TO THE GREAT MERIT OF THE YOUNG MAN, AT LAST DETERMINED THE LADY. After all, says she, when my husband shall cross the bridge Chinovar in his journey to the other world, the angel Azrael will not refuse him a passage, because his nose is a little shorter in the second life than it was in the first. She then took a razor, went to her husband's tomb, bedewed it with her tears, and drew near to cut off the nose of Zadig, whom she found extended at full length in the tomb, Zadig arose, holding his nose with one hand and putting back the razor with the other. "'Madam,' said he, "'don't exclaim so violently against young Kosru. The project of cutting off my nose is equal to that of turning the course of a rivulet.'" The Dog and the Horse Zadig found by experience that the first month of marriage— as it is written in the book of Zend, is the moon of honey, and that the second is the moon of wormwood. He was some time after obliged to repudiate Azora, who became too difficult to be pleased, and he then sought for happiness in the study of nature. No man, said he, can be happier than a philosopher who reads in this great book which God hath placed before our eyes. The truths he discovers are his own, he nourishes and exalts his soul, he lives in peace, he fears nothing from men, and his tender spouse will not come to cut off his nose. Possessed of these ideas, he retired to a country house on the banks of the Euphrates. There he did not employ himself in calculating how many inches of water flow in a second of time under the arches of a bridge, "'or whether there fell a cube line of rain in the month of the mouse "'more than in the month of the sheep. "'He never dreamed of making silk of cobwebs "'or porcelain of broken bottles, "'but he chiefly studied the properties of plants and animals, "'and soon acquired a sagacity "'that made him discover a thousand differences, "'where other men see nothing but uniformity. "'One day as he was walking near a little wood,' he saw one of the queen's eunuchs running toward him, followed by several officers, who appeared to be in great perplexity, and who ran to and fro like men distracted, eagerly searching for something they had lost of great value. "'Young man,' said the first eunuch, "'hast thou seen the queen's dog?' "'It is a female,' replied Zadig. "'Thou art in the right,' returned the first eunuch. "'It is a very small she-spaniel,' added Zadig. She has lately whelped, she limps on the left forefoot, and has very long ears. "'Thou hast seen her,' said the first eunuch, quite out of breath. "'No,' replied Zadig. "'I have not seen her, nor did I so much as know that the queen had a dog.' Exactly at the same time, by one of the common freaks of fortune— The finest horse in the king's stable had escaped from the jockey in the plains of Babylon. The principal huntsman and all the other officers ran after him with as much eagerness and anxiety as the first eunuch had done after the spaniel. The principal huntsman addressed himself to Zadig, and asked him if he had not seen the king's horse passing by. "'He is the fleetest horse in the king's stable,' replied Zadig. He is five feet high, with very small hoofs, and a tail three feet and a half in length. The studs on his bit are gold, of twenty-three carats, and his shoes are silver, of eleven pennyweights. "'What way did he take? Where is he?' demanded the chief huntsman. "'I have not seen him,' replied Zadig, and never heard talk of him before.' The principal huntsman and the first eunuch never doubted but that Zadig had stolen the king's horse and the queen's spaniel. They therefore had him conducted before the assembly of the grand Desterham, who condemned him to the knout, and to spend the rest of his days in Siberia. Hardly was the sentence passed when the horse and the spaniel were both found. The judges were reduced to the disagreeable necessity of reversing their sentence, but they condemned Zadig to pay four hundred ounces of gold for having said that he had not seen what he had seen. This fine he was obliged to pay, after which he was permitted to plead his cause before the council of the Grand Desterham, when he spoke to the following effect. Ye stars of justice, abbess of sciences, mirrors of truth, who have the weight of lead, the hardness of iron, the splendour of the diamond, and many properties of gold. Since I am permitted to speak before this august assembly, I swear to you by Ormades that I have never seen the Queen's respectable spaniel, nor the sacred horse of the King of Kings. The truth of the matter was as follows. I was walking toward the little wood, where I afterwards met the venerable eunuch and the most illustrious chief huntsman. I observed on the sand the traces of an animal, and could easily perceive them to be those of a little dog. The light and long furrows impressed on little eminences of sand between the marks of the paws plainly discovered that it was a female whose dugs were hanging down, and that therefore she must have whelped a few days before. Other traces, of a different kind, that always appeared to have gently brushed the surface of the sand near the marks of the forefeet, "'showed me that she had very long ears. "'And as I remarked that there was always a slighter impression "'made on the sand by one foot than the other three, "'I found that the spaniel of our august queen was a little lame, "'if I may be allowed the expression. "'With regard to the horse of the King of Kings, "'you will be pleased to know that, walking in the lanes of this wood, "'I observed the marks of a horse's shoes, all at equal distances.' "'This must be a horse,' said I to myself, "'that gallops excellently. "'The dust on the trees in the road "'that was but seven feet wide "'was a little brushed off "'at the distance of three feet and a half "'from the middle of the road. "'This horse,' said I, "'has a tail three feet and a half long, "'which being whisked to the right and left "'has swept away the dust. "'I observed under the trees "'that formed an arbour five feet in height,' that the leaves of the branches were newly fallen, from whence I inferred that the horse had touched them, and that he must therefore be five feet high. As to his bit, it must be gold of twenty-three carats, for he had rubbed its bosses against a stone which I knew to be a touchstone, and which I have tried. In a word, from the marks made by his shoes on flints of another kind, I concluded that he was shod with silver. Eleven deniers fine. All the judges admired Zadig for his acute and profound discernment. The news of this speech was carried even to the king and queen. Nothing was talked of but Zadig in the antechambers, the chambers, and the cabinet, and though many of the magi were of opinion that he ought to be burned as a sorcerer, THE KING ORDERED HIS OFFICERS TO RESTORE HIM THE 400 OUNCES OF GOLD WHICH HE HAD BEEN OBLIGED TO PAY. THE REGISTER, THE ATTORNEYS, AND bailiffs WENT TO HIS HOUSE WITH GREAT FORMALITY TO CARRY HIM BACK HIS 400 OUNCES. THEY ONLY RETAINED 398 OF THEM TO DEFRAY THE EXPENSES OF JUSTICE, AND THEIR SERVANTS DEMANDED THEIR FEES. Zadig saw how extremely dangerous it sometimes is to appear too knowing, and therefore resolved that on the next occasion of the like nature he would not tell what he had seen. Such an opportunity soon offered. A prisoner of state made his escape and passed under the window of Zadig's house. Zadig was examined and made no answer, but it was proved that he had looked at the prisoner from this window, FOR THIS CRIME HE WAS CONDEMNED TO PAY FIVE HUNDRED OUNCES OF GOLD. AND, ACCORDING TO THE POLITE CUSTOM OF BABYLON, HE THANKED HIS JUDGES FOR THEIR INDULGENCE. GREAT GOD, HE SAID TO HIMSELF, WHAT A MISFORTUNE IT IS TO WALK IN A WOOD THROUGH WHICH THE QUEEN'S SPANIEL OR THE KING'S HORSE HAS PASSED. HOW DANGEROUS TO LOOK OUT FROM A WINDOW! AND HOW DIFFICULT TO BE HAPPY IN THIS LIFE! THE ENVIOUS MAN. Zadig resolved to comfort himself by philosophy and friendship for the evils he had suffered from fortune. He had in the suburbs of Babylon a house elegantly furnished, in which he assembled all the arts and all the pleasures worthy the pursuit of a gentleman. In the morning his library was open to the learned. In the evening his table was surrounded by good company, but he soon found what very dangerous guests these men of letters are. A warm dispute arose on one of Zoroaster's laws, which forbids the eating of a griffin. Why, said some of them, prohibit the eating of a griffin, if there is no such an animal in nature? There must necessarily be such an animal, said the others, since Zoroaster forbids us to eat it. Zadig would fain have reconciled them by saying, If there are no griffins, we cannot possibly eat them, and thus either way we shall obey Zoroaster. A learned man, who had composed thirteen volumes on the properties of the griffin, and was besides the chief Thurgite, hastened away to accuse Zadig before one of the principal magi, named Yibor, the greatest blockhead, and therefore the greatest fanatic, among the Chaldeans. This man would have impaled Zadig to do honours to the sun, and would then have recited the breviary of Zoroaster with greater satisfaction. The friend Cador, a friend is better than a hundred priests, went to Yebor and said to him, Long live the sun and the griffins. Beware of punishing Zadig. He is a saint, he has griffins in his inner court, and does not eat them, and his accuser is a heretic, who dares to maintain that rabbits have cloven feet, and are not unclean. "'Well,' said Yebor, shaking his bald pate, "'we must impale Zadig for having thought contemptuously of griffins, and the other for having spoken disrespectfully of rabbits.' Cador hushed up the affair by means of a maid of honour with whom he had a love affair, and who had great interest in the College of the Magi. Nobody was impaled. This levity occasioned a great murmuring among some of the doctors, who from thence predicted the fall of Babylon. Upon what does happiness depend? said Zadig. I AM PERSECUTED BY EVERYTHING IN THE WORLD, EVEN ON ACCOUNT OF BEINGS THAT HAVE NO EXISTENCE. HE CURSED THOSE MEN OF LEARNING, AND RESOLVED FOR THE FUTURE TO LIVE WITH NONE BUT GOOD COMPANY. HE ASSEMBLED AT HIS HOUSE THE MOST WORTHY MEN AND THE MOST BEAUTIFUL LADIES OF BABYLON. HE GAVE THEM DELICIOUS SUPPERS, OFTEN PRECEDED BY CONCERTS OF MUSIC, AND ALWAYS ANIMATED BY POLITE CONVERSATION from which he knew how to banish that affectation of wit, which is the surest method of preventing it entirely, and of spoiling the pleasure of the most agreeable society. Neither the choice of his friends nor that of the dishes was made by vanity, for in everything he preferred the substance to the shadow, and by these means he procured that real respect to which he did not aspire. Opposite to his house lived one Aramazes, a man whose deformed countenance was but a faint picture of his still more deformed mind. His heart was a mixture of malice, pride, and envy. Having never been able to succeed in any of his undertakings, he revenged himself on all around him by loading them with the blackest calumnies. RICH AS HE WAS, HE FOUND IT DIFFICULT TO PROCURE A SET OF FLATTERERS. THE RATTLING OF THE CHARIOTS THAT ENTERED ZADIG'S COURT IN THE EVENING FILLED HIM WITH UNEASINESS. THE SOUND OF HIS PRAISES ENRAGED HIM STILL MORE. HE SOMETIMES WENT TO ZADIG'S HOUSE, AND SAT DOWN AT TABLE WITHOUT BEING DESIRED, WHERE HE spoiled ALL THE PLEASURE OF THE COMPANY, AS THE HARPIES ARE SAID TO INFECT THE viands THEY TOUCH. It happened that one day he took it in his head to give an entertainment to a lady, who instead of accepting it, went to sup with Zadig. At another time he was talking with Zadig at court. A minister of state came up to them, and invited Zadig to supper, without inviting Aramazes. The most implacable hatred has seldom a more solid foundation. This man, who in Babylon was called the Envious, resolved to ruin Zadig, because he was called the Happy. The opportunity of doing mischief occurs a hundred times in a day, and that of doing good but once a year, as saith the wise Zoroaster. The Envious Man went to see Zadig, who was walking in his garden with two friends and a lady to whom he said many gallant things, without any other intention than that of saying them. The conversation turned upon a war which the king had just brought to a happy conclusion against the prince of Hyrkenia, his vassal. Zadig, who had signalized his courage in this short war, bestowed great praises on the king, but greater still on the lady. He took out his pocket-book and wrote four lines extempore which he gave to this amiable person to read. His friends begged they might see them, but modesty, or rather a well-regulated self-love, would not allow him to grant their request. He knew that extemporary verses are never approved of by any but the person in whose honour they are written. He therefore tore in two the leaf on which he had wrote them, AND THREW BOTH THE PIECES INTO A THICKET OF ROSE-BUSHES, WHERE THE REST OF THE COMPANY SOUGHT FOR THEM IN vain. A SLIGHT SHOWER FALLING SOON AFTER OBLIGED THEM TO RETURN TO THE HOUSE. THE ENVIOUS MAN, WHO STAYED IN THE GARDEN, CONTINUED THE SEARCH, TILL AT LAST HE FOUND A PIECE OF THE LEAF. IT HAD BEEN TORN IN SUCH A MANNER THAT EACH HALF OF A LINE FORMED A COMPLETE SENSE, AND EVEN A VERSE OF A SHORTER MEASURE. BUT WHAT WAS STILL MORE SURPRISING, THESE SHORT VERSES WERE FOUND TO CONTAIN THE MOST INJURIOUS REFLECTIONS ON THE KING. THEY RAN THUS. TO FLAGRANT CRIMES HIS CROWN HE OWES, TO PEACEFUL TIMES THE WORST OF FOES. THE ENVIOUS MAN WAS NOW HAPPY FOR THE FIRST TIME OF HIS LIFE. HE HAD IT IN HIS POWER TO RUIN A PERSON OF VIRTUE AND MERIT. Filled with this fiend-like joy, he found means to convey to the king the satire written by the hand of Zadig, who, together with the lady and his two friends, was thrown into prison. His trial was soon finished, without his being permitted to speak for himself. As he was going to receive his sentence, the envious man threw himself in his way, and told him with a loud voice that his verses were good for nothing. Zadig did not value himself on being a good poet, but it filled him with inexpressible concern to find that he was condemned for high treason, and that the fair lady and his two friends were confined in prison for a crime of which they were not guilty. He was not allowed to speak because his writing spoke for him. Such was the law of Babylon. Accordingly he was conducted to the place of execution— through an immense crowd of spectators, who durst not venture to express their pity for him, but who carefully examined his countenance, to see if he died with a good grace. His relations alone were inconsolable, for they could not succeed to his estate. Three-fourths of his wealth were confiscated into the king's treasury, and the other fourth was given to the envious man. Just as he was preparing for death The king's parrot flew from its cage and alighted on a rose-bush in Zadig's garden. A peach had been driven thither by the wind from a neighbouring tree, and had fallen on a piece of the written leaf of the pocket-book to which it stuck. The bird carried off the peach and the paper, and laid them on the king's knee. The king took up the paper with great eagerness and read the words, which formed no sense, "'and seemed to be the endings of verses. "'He loved poetry, and there was always some mercy to be expected "'from a prince of that disposition. "'The adventure of the parrot set him a-thinking. "'The queen, who remembered what had been written "'on the piece of Zadig's pocket-book, caused it to be brought. "'They compared the two pieces together, "'and found them to tally exactly.' They then read the verses as Zadig had wrote them. Tyrants are prone to flagrant crimes, to clemency his crown he owes, to concord and to peaceful times, love only is the worst of foes. The king gave immediate orders that Zadig should be brought before him, and that his two friends and the lady should be set at liberty. Zadig fell prostrate on the ground before the king and queen, humbly begged their pardon for having made such bad verses, and spoke with so much propriety, wit, and good sense, that their majesties desired they might see him again. He did himself that honour, and insinuated himself still farther into their good graces. They gave him all the wealth of the envious man, but Zadig restored him back the whole of it and this instance of generosity gave no other pleasure to the envious man than that of having preserved his estate. The king's esteem for Zadig increased every day. He admitted him into all his parties of pleasure, and consulted him in all affairs of state. From that time the queen began to regard him with an eye of tenderness that might one day prove dangerous to herself, to the king, her august comfort, to Zadig, and to the kingdom in general. Zadig now began to think that happiness was not so unattainable as he had formerly imagined. THE GENEROUS The time now arrived for celebrating a grand festival, which returned every five years. It was a custom in Babylon solemnly to declare at the end of every five years which of the citizens had performed the most generous action. The grandees and the magi were the judges. The first satrap, who was charged with the government of the city, published the most noble actions that had passed under his administration. The competition was decided by votes, and the king pronounced the sentence people came to this solemnity from the extremities of the earth. The conqueror received from the monarch's hand a golden cup adorned with precious stones, his majesty at the same time making him this compliment. Receive this reward of thy generosity, and may the gods grant me many subjects like to thee. This memorable day being come— the king appeared on his throne, surrounded by the grandees, the magi, and the deputies of all nations that came to these games, where glory was acquired, not by the swiftness of horses, nor by strength of body, but by virtue. The first satrap recited, with an audible voice, such actions as might entitle the authors of them to this invaluable prize— He did not mention the greatness of soul with which Zadig had restored the envious man his fortune, because it was not judged to be an action worthy of disputing the prize. He first presented a judge who, having made a citizen lose a considerable cause by a mistake, for which, after all, he was not accountable, had given him the whole of his own estate— which was just equal to what the other had lost. He next produced a young man who, being desperately in love with a lady whom he was going to marry, had yielded her up to his friend, whose passion for her had almost brought him to the brink of the grave, and at the same time had given him the lady's fortune. He afterwards produced a soldier who, in the wars of Hirsania, had given a still more noble instance of generosity. A party of the enemy, having seized his mistress, he fought in her defence with great intrepidity. At that very instant he was informed that another party, at the distance of a few paces, were carrying off his mother. He therefore left his mistress with tears in his eyes, and flew to the assistance of his mother, At last he returned to the dear object of his love, and found her expiring. He was just going to plunge his sword in his own bosom, but his mother, remonstrating against such a desperate deed, and telling him that he was the only support of her life, he had the courage to endure to live. The judges were inclined to give the prize to the soldier. But the king took up the discourse and said— THE ACTION OF THE SOLDIER, AND THOSE OF THE OTHER TWO, ARE DOUBTLESS VERY GREAT, BUT THEY HAVE NOTHING IN THEM SURPRISING. YESTERDAY ZADIG PERFORMED AN ACTION THAT FILLED ME WITH WONDER. I HAD A FEW DAYS BEFORE DISGRACED KOREB, MY MINISTER AND FAVORITE. I COMPLAINED OF HIM IN THE MOST VIOLENT AND BITTER TERMS. ALL MY COURTIERS ASSURED ME THAT I WAS TOO GENTLE and seemed to vie with each other in speaking ill of Coreb. I asked Zadig what he thought of him, and he had the courage to commend him. I have read in our histories of many people who have atoned for an error by the surrender of their fortune, who have resigned a mistress, or preferred a mother to the object of their affection. But never before did I hear of a courtier who spoke favourably of a disgraced minister that laboured under the displeasure of his sovereign. I give to each of those whose generous actions have been now recited twenty thousand pieces of gold. But the cup I give to Zadig. "'May it please your majesty,' said Zadig. "'Thyself alone deservest the cup.' THOU HAST PERFORMED AN ACTION OF ALL OTHERS THE MOST UNCOMMON AND MERITORIOUS, SINCE NOTWITHSTANDING THY BEING A POWERFUL KING, THOU WAST NOT OFFENDED AT THY SLAVE WHEN HE PRESUMED TO OPPOSE THY PASSION. THE KING AND ZADIG WERE EQUALLY THE OBJECT OF ADMIRATION. THE JUDGE WHO HAD GIVEN HIS ESTATE TO HIS CLIENT, THE LOVER WHO HAD RESIGNED HIS MISTRESS TO A FRIEND, and the soldier, who had preferred the safety of his mother to that of his mistress, received the king's presents, and saw their names enrolled in the catalogue of generous men. Zadig had the cup, and the king acquired the reputation of a good prince, which he did not long enjoy. The day was celebrated by feasts that lasted longer than the law enjoined, and the memory of it is still preserved in Asia. Zadig said, "'Now I am happy at last.' But he found himself fatally deceived. THE MINISTER The king had lost his first minister, and chose Zadig to supply his place. All the ladies in Babylon applauded the choice, for since the foundation of the empire there had never been such a young minister.' but all the courtiers were filled with jealousy and vexation. The envious man in particular was troubled with a spitting of blood and a prodigious inflammation in his nose. Zadig, having thanked the king and queen for their goodness, went likewise to thank the parrot. "'Beautiful bird,' said he, "'tis thou that hast saved my life and made me first minister.' The queen's spaniel and the king's horse did me a great deal of mischief, but thou hast done me much good. Upon such slender threads as these do the fates of mortals hang. But, added he, this happiness perhaps will vanish very soon. Soon, replied the parrot. Zadig was somewhat startled at this word, but as he was a good natural philosopher— and did not believe parrots to be prophets, he quickly recovered his spirits, and resolved to execute his duty to the best of his power. He made every one feel the sacred authority of the laws, but no one felt the weight of his dignity. He never checked the deliberation of the Duran, and every vizier might give his opinion without the fear of incurring the minister's displeasure. When he gave judgment, it was not he that gave it, it was the law, the rigor of which, however, whenever it was too severe, he always took care to soften. And when laws were wanting, the equity of his decisions was such as might easily have made them pass for those of Zoroaster. It is to him that the nations are indebted for this grand principle. To wit, that it is better to run the risk of sparing the guilty than to condemn the innocent. He imagined that laws were made as well to secure the people from the suffering of injuries as to restrain them from the commission of crimes. His chief talent consisted in discovering the truth which all men seek to obscure. This great talent he put in practice from the very beginning of his administration. A famous merchant of Babylon, who died in the Indies, divided his estate equally between his two sons, after having disposed of their sister in marriage, and left a present of thirty thousand pieces of gold to that son who should be found to have loved him best. The eldest raised a tomb to his memory, the youngest increased his sister's portion by giving her part of his inheritance— Everyone said that the eldest son loved his father best, and the youngest his sister, and that the thirty thousand pieces belonged to the eldest. Zadig sent for both of them, the one after the other. To the eldest he said, "'Thy father is not dead, he is recovered of his last illness and is returning to Babylon.' "'God be praised!' replied the young man. "'But his tomb cost me a considerable sum.' Zadig, afterwards, said the same to the youngest. "'God be praised!' said he. "'I will go and restore to my father all that I have. "'But I could wish that he would leave my sister what I have given her.' "'Thou shalt restore nothing,' replied Zadig. "'And thou shalt have the thirty thousand pieces, "'for thou art the son who loves his father best.'" End of Section 18